0: Proverbs chapter 4. Our scripture reading from Proverbs comes from verses 1 through 9 of this chapter. And then after we pray for our time in the Word, we'll then go over to Proverbs 16. That will be the sermon text for the date. This is our scripture reading from Proverbs 4 beginning in verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. (laughs) And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Let's, play, let's pray once more. Our great Father, we come before you now and we... Praise your name that you are infinitely wise. There is nothing that you do not know. There is nothing that you do not see. There is nothing that you are unaware of. There is nothing that catches you by surprise. There is nothing that trips you up or stumbles you because you are infinitely wise. And we praise you this morning. Father, we also confess that we're finite. We confess that we are small. We even confess that we're sinful. And so we need you to take your wisdom and pour it into our hearts that we might know and experience The skill of navigating all of life toward your glory and your praise. And for that right now, we ask that as we read verses 1 through 3 in chapter 16, that you might give us your wisdom, that we might know it, feel it, experience, and live it in this world for your honor and praise. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So now turn to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16 Verses 1 through 3. The title of the message is The Skill of Making Plans. The, The Skill of Making Plans. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. May God bless the reading of His Word. From the time that I was five years old, My plan was to play professional baseball for the Atlanta Braves. I grew up watching the Braves on the Turner Broadcasting Station just about every night. And in the early 80s, the Braves were really good, even won the pennant early on. But then through the mid-80s, all the way through the late 80s, they were terrible. At one point, I remember they were 27 and a half games out of first place. And my dad and I were like, you have to try to be 27 and a half games out of first place. But the fact is, I love the Braves. And my plan, my plan was to one day play shortstop for the Atlanta Braves. I dreamed about it. I prepared for it. I prayed about it. I did. I really did. I worked toward it every day. In some way, in every day, I plan to be an Atlanta Braves shortstop one day. I remember, I just honestly, I, I fielded thousands of ground balls. I, I caught thousands of pop flies. I, I hit thousands of baseballs in batting practice. I threw thousands of... Of baseballs against concrete walls where I then fielded them and threw them back. Or tennis balls against houses where I would uh, throw it and then field it, throw it, and field it, throw it, and field it. I will tell you, from Air, Alabama to Oxford, Mississippi, there were a number of houses who lost their windows because of me throwing baseballs. That is no exaggeration of the truth. I did well in Little League. And my plan was to play for the Atlanta Braves. I did well in Babe Ruth, which is like 13 to 15-year-old. My plan was to play for the Atlanta Braves. When I was in high school at the age of 16, I went and tried out for the Atlanta Braves in Montgomery. And the scout told me after the tryout that you need to work on your speed and just continue to improve. And so that was my plan, work on my speed and continue to improve. During my senior year of high school, a few colleges recruited me, and I signed with a community college, Central Alabama. I'm going to spare you the details, but at that time, my plan was still to play for the Atlanta Braves. I no longer played shortstop, though, because I wasn't quick enough. I'd gotten stuck on the corners at third and, and first. But as I played my college career, I will never forget the day. It was late October, like today. It was gray outside, like it is today. We were working on hitting outside the left field wall. We had these, these posts, and attached to these posts were these big tires. And uh, they, these tires were simply there for us to hit against the tire to make strong contact with the ball. And so I was with my bat, I'm a left-handed hitter, and I was just going through these motions trying to strengthen my, my swing. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this in your, in your life, but I was hit like a ton of bricks with the realization, I'm not going to play for the Atlanta Braves. I remember everything about that moment. It hit me, like a lightning bolt. I am not going to play for the Atlanta Braves. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you realized that your plan for your life is not God's plan for your life? That is, that is a moment like no other. Because in that moment, it reveals who you love the most, what you desire the most, and where you find your identity and your value in life. Well, this this passage shows us that very thing. It gives us three principles for making plans for the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's what this passage does. And it shows us that making plans is not a bad thing. And having dreams is not a bad thing. Those things are good things as long as they fall underneath God's sovereign plan. And so let's look look down at verse 1. Because the first principle that he wants us to see is this. Reject self-sovereignty and accept God's sovereignty. Reject self-sovereignty and accept God's sovereignty. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. This is the key idea. Just look down at the text. Look at the text. This is the idea. You can legitimately make plans for your life, first part of the verse, but God determines what will actually happen. The purpose of this verse is not to discourage you from planning. It is just simply to keep you aware that your plans will come to nothing without God's sovereign approval of your plans. Your plans will always be trumped by God's plans. And the fact is, as Americans, we have a rich heritage of freedom. We have a rich heritage of independence. We have a rich heritage of self-autonomy. We do what we want, when we want, how we want as long as it's underneath our legal system if you want to quit your job and start your own business you have the freedom and right to do that today if you want to take a vacation to new england this week you have the right and the freedom to do that today if you want to de-enroll your kids from public school and enroll them in private school you have the freedom and the right to do that tomorrow morning first thing If you want to dye your hair purple and you want to put a nose ring and have the profile of Justin Bieber on your arm, you have the freedom and right to do that. But one of the things that the American dream and American freedom has done is contribute to our already messed up view of self-importance and self-sovereignty. We have tricked ourselves into believing that we are the center of the universe. I recently heard a story about a a girl who was having a birthday party, and she was at the head table, and at the head table she had all these myriads of gifts piled up to her left and to her right, and then all the other children were on smaller tables, kind of in a horseshoe format, and, and those kids had party favors. A stick of gum, a piece of candy, and a plastic whistle. And they're looking at this girl with all of these gifts, and she opens one after the other after the other. And little Johnny is over there looking at all of these gifts, and he begins to get angry. He begins to get mad. He begins to snort and pout, and then he begins to cry. Why? Because he doesn't have the same kinds of gifts that the girl has. And finally... A parent walks over to little Johnny, pulls his chair around, gets on Johnny's eye level, and says, Johnny, it's not your party. Better theology has never been spoken. (laughs) We have tricked ourselves into believing that this is our party. This is my party. I'm the center of the universe. And the reality is, God is warning us. He is instructing us in this passage that He is the center of the universe. That we exist for Him, not He exists for us. Your life is not intended for your glory. It is intended for God's. You are not sovereign. God is. And so God's sovereignty... Essentially is this, is that God does what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, how he wants to do it. But listen, it's not just arbitrary sovereignty. It's not like he's this just control freak up in the sky. No, God is fully loyal to his holiness and to his love. And so God does what He wants, when He wants, how He wants, with whomever He wants, with full allegiance to His holy character and His infinite love for sinners. That is the essence of God's sovereignty. And if we are ever going to make plans in this life, and with our families, and for this church, we have to bow before God's sovereignty and reject our own so that we can know the joy of following after Him. Let's consider this one fact. And I think it will all cause us to realize that we're not sovereign, but God is. Five years ago, not a single one of you could have written yourself into this building on this morning. Right. Right. We're not sovereign, folks. God is. Let's bow before Him. And let's say, when we make plans, let's always know. Let's always, always know and rest that his plans are better than ours, his plans are bigger than ours, and his plans are more redemptive than our plans. Let's reject self-sovereignty and accept God's sovereignty. The second principle for making plans that God wants us to see is to reject self-approval and pursue God's appraisal. Reject self-approval and accept God's appraisal. I could have said reject self-righteousness. I mean the same thing. Reject self-righteousness. Reject self-approval and yet pursue God's appraisal. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the Spirit. Keep your eye down on the text. This is what the, the message is. You have an incredible ability to deceive yourself concerning your own righteousness. And the fact is, God is the only one who accurately measures the rightness or the wrongness of your ways. Now, when he says ways here, all the ways of a man are pure in his own own eyes. By ways, he means decisions, behavior. In other words, all all the money decisions that a man makes are pure in his own eyes. All the friendship decisions that a child makes is pure in her own eyes. All the leadership decisions that shepherds make are pure in their own eyes. All the family decisions that a dad and a mom make are pure in their own eyes. All the speech decisions that any individual makes are pure in his eyes. All job decisions are pure. All all spare time decisions are pure in and of their own eyes. But the fact is this, you and I have a fatal flaw. I mean, the human race has a fatal flaw. And that is this, this is so important. Boy, this, this one truth right here could so help us as a church family. Listen to this, we easily identify the foolishness in others. But we are inexplicably blind to our own folly. More than that, and because of that, we hold people to a standard of righteousness and love that is virtually unattainable. We do. Chris, I have a tendency to hold you to a standard of love, love for me that is unattainable, a righteousness that is unattainable. There is something in me that says what Chris Heitch is doing right now is not good enough. And how Chris Heitch is living right now is not loving enough. But but, but worse than that, worse than that, is that I explain away my own immorality and callousness. And I say, I have freedom. And I say, I'm busy. You see, that's what we do. We have a way of, of absolutely angelizing our own hearts and demonizing the hearts and lives of the people whom we love. And so what I want to say is that personal appraisals aren't worth very much because they are full of personal bias. God's appraisal is the one that matters. A couple of years ago, we had someone come out and look at our house, kind of give an informal appraisal of our house. When he came back, and informed us of the, the value, the appraised value immediately became defensive. Does he not know what all we've done? Did he not look closely at the floors? Did he not see how we made the living room better and bigger? Has he not seen what we did with the area outside? This house is worth way much more than what he has evaluated it to be. But the reality is this. I am not a good appraiser of my own house because I am biased. It's my house. It's my house. Chris Lundegaard has written a really fantastic book called The Enemy Within. I want to read a little bit from the book regarding the human heart. I'll go in if you will. Maybe we should go home. It's late. I didn't tell my parents. Chicken. Am not. It's just we don't have time. Oh, you're scared, all right. You believe the stories, don't you? Okay, Mr. No-Fear, we'll go in. But if I get grounded, you'll pay. It's a deal. Let's go. The boy and girl push through a wrought iron gate that hangs by one hinge and enter an unkept courtyard, dead leaves scurry across a walk and a decayed Victorian mansion in front of them groans against a sudden wind. The sky mourns overhead and thunderbolts dance above the gables. So begins every haunted house scene and every horror movie ever made. After one of the heroes puts his foot through a rotted plank of the porch, they find the door unlocked and step inside while we whisper, don't do it. We follow them through cobweb-littered halls and rooms, our pulse quick and breath short, knowing some horrid thing will jump, fall, or fly out of a closet, through a window, from behind a door. Or maybe it'll grab one of them in the basement or attic, or better, under the stairs they'll find a secret passageway that leads to what looks to be an abandoned laboratory. On a slab there's a cloth covering a body. Fools they are. Our heroes pull back the cover. A disfigured face makes them jump, but it is still... Eyes closed. They turn to go, and we relax. Then the creature rises and nabs them from behind. The haunted house scares us because it hides something unknown and deadly. It has countless coat closets, cabinets, false walls, trap doors, attics, basements, corners, shadows where the monster lies in wait, licking its chops. You have a haunted house within you. Do you know what it is? Your heart. Your heart. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The heart is deceitful above all things, and dare we doubt it, think about this. Think about how fickle you are. Think about how fickle you are. One day you are this source of wisdom, and then the very next day you're a clown. You can be open and cheery on Monday and then you're reserved and gloomy on Tuesday. You're easy to get along with on Wednesday, and then you're a real crank on Thursday. You're romantic on Friday, and you're frosty on Saturday. One day, Jesus is all the world to you, and then the next day, you love the things of the world more than King Midas. That's you. That's me. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord. Only the Lord can. So if you look down at the text, you and I need to look at part one of that text. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. And we need to reject the approval of ourselves, and we need to pursue God's appraisal of ourselves. And we need to say this, we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we need to say, God has given us an appraisal. It is right, it is true, it is accurate. And what God has said is that you and I have fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned. We have trespassed against His righteous standards. We have rebelled against His goodwill. We have crossed over the no trespass passing sign and we have thumbed our nose at God and we have run headlong into our sin and the self-centeredness of our own universe and we need to say God you're right we're guilty and then in doing so in doing so, we need to look at God and we need to say, praise be to Your name that You have provided the life of Your Son which is perfect, and the death of Your Son which is sacrificial, and the resurrection of Your Son which is powerful, and the reign of Your Son which is glorious, because in Him I can have life, and in Him I can have a new heart, and in Him I can have a new spirit, and I can walk in victory each and every day because I'm I'm resting not on the value of my own heart and my own life, but on the value of Jesus Christ's heart and His own life. And so we need to reject the approval of ourselves and we need to accept God's appraisal and receive His offer of forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the second principle for decision-making. The third principle comes from verse 3. Reject self-reliance and entrust yourself to God. Reject self-reliance and entrust yourself to God. Look down at the text. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Keep your eyes on the text. The idea is not simply pray that God will honor your plans and establish them. No, no, Look, look down. It is submit your entire life and your entire way to God so that even if your plans are completely obliterated, you can recognize and reverence His deeper plan at work in your life. That is the point of the text. And so this is what I want to do right now is I just want to give you about four ways to entrust yourself to God. Here are four ways that you can obey Verse 3, four ways to commit your work to the Lord. First of all, remember who God is. We are tempted not to entrust ourselves to God and to give ourselves entirely over to Him because we we don't remember His character and His work and His greatness. Remember that God is the one who speaks. He is not that big person in the sky who's never uttered a word. No, He has spoken to us. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. In the beginning, God spoke to Adam and Eve. He has spoken out the entirety of this book over a matter of a few thousand years and has said, This is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is how much I love you. And this is how much I want to be in relationship with you. Here you go. It's a love gift from your God to you. He's the God who speaks, He's the God who rules. Psalm 115 says that our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He is in heaven right now, ruling and reigning as sovereign. Yes, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, but make no mistake about it, this is God's world. This is God's world. He is the God who knows everything. Everything. He is the God who sees everything. He is the God who has power over everything. He is the God who is holy. He is supreme above us. He is separate from us. He is sinless unlike us. He is holy, holy, holy. And at the very same time, He's the God who loves. He's the God who pursues our highest good. He's the God who sacrifices that we might be in relationship with Him. He's the God who says, I'm not satisfied until I reach my children for my glory to be in my family that they might know all of my blessings. This is who God is. And if you're ever going to entrust yourself to God, you must know who He is. You must remember who He is so that you can have an accurate view of this person that you're putting the entirety of your life into His arms. The second way to entrust yourself to God is to remember who you are. Remember who you are. You're made in the image of God for the glory of God. I I don't care what the circumstances were of your conception. I do not care what the circumstances were of your early childhood. I don't care whether you were born in a hospital or in a home or in a barn. It does not matter. It does not matter who your parents were. It does not matter because God is the one who wrought you. God is the one who formed you in your mother's womb. And God is the one who has a plan for you. You need to remember that about yourself. And you need to also remember that you have the spiritual DNA of Adam and Eve. That when they fell into rebellion, they cast everyone who would come after them into a heart of rebellion. Into a heart of trespassing against the goodness of God and pursuing the glory of self. And you and I have that. We're sinners. And so when we remember who we are, we've got to know who our parents are. And at the very same time, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who has said, I believe that Jesus is God, I believe that He was born of a virgin, that He lived a sinless life, that He died a sacrificial death, that He rose from the dead powerfully, that He ascended into heaven gloriously, and that one day He's going to return. If you're someone who says, I rest my life on those facts, I put all of my trust in Jesus, what you need to know is that not only have you inherited the sinful DNA of Adam and Eve, but now you have been regenerated. You've been made new by the Holy Spirit. And you because of your faith in Christ, have been reconciled to God. You are a child of God. You are loved by God. And because of that, you are victorious in God. Remember who you are. The third thing that you need to do if you're going to entrust yourself to God is to rest in what Christ did. Rest in what Christ did. It seems like I've talked a lot about this in recent weeks. But the reality is, you and I have a strong temptation to rely on our self-worth, to rely on our good works, to rely on our own merit, on our track record. It never ceases to amaze me. When I go door to door or I stand inside of a classroom or in a locker room and I end up having a conversation with a teenager or with a 55-year-old single man and I ask them if they affirm the gospel, if they affirm the person and work of Jesus and do they believe that He died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and they say, yes, yes, yes. And then I ask the question, so if you were to die today and to be ushered into the presence of king jesus and he were to say why should i let you into heaven those very same people say because i lived a good life because i did the best i could because my good outweighs my bad what does that tell us folks It tells us that deep within the haunted house of our own heart, we have a self-confidence, a self-reliance, a self-dependence in us that even when we affirm the glorious truths of God's love in Jesus Christ, there is something about us that says we want to go to God with who we are and with what we've done. And so I would say, Rest in what Christ has done on your behalf if you're ever wanting your plans to succeed. Because if it is your desires and your ambitions and your worth and your dependence, God will never bless it. No matter how successful you are in this world. And then the final thing, to entrust yourself to God is to run to Christ for everything. Run to Him. Run to Him for your job. Run to Him for your business plan. Run to Him for your parenting. Run to Him for this conflict that you have with a friend. Run to Him with a decision about a house. Run to Him about a decision about a lawnmower. Run to Him about a decision about where to go vacation. Run to Him for everything that you do because in running to Him, you're saying, God, You are sovereign and I am not. God, You are pure and I am not. I need Need you. I cast myself consciously upon your will, your sovereignty, your goodness, your plan. The big idea of verses 1 through 3 really is that self-sovereign plans and self-approved ways fall short of God's wisdom and God's glory. But Spirit-led plans produce a rock-solid life. Spirit-led plans produce a rock-solid life. The last thing I want to do with you this morning from this text is to give you an equation. As a matter of fact, I'm such not a mathematician that I don't think equation is the proper word here. But whatever the proper word is, this this is this is what I want you to write down if you're taking notes. My smallness plus God's greatness equals my dependence on God. My smallness Plus, God's greatness equals my dependence on God. And by that, I mean my conscious dependence. Because, brother, sister, friend, I just want you to know that whatever you do, you are fully and wholly dependent on God to do it, whether or not you admit it or embrace that or not. Would you please bow your head and your hearts with me? As you maybe close your eyes right now and meditate on how to entrust yourself to God, I want to ask you a biblical question. What was the biggest problem with the people who lived during the time of the Judges? What was the biggest problem with the Israelite people who lived in the time of the judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I want to ask you right now if you would be honest with God. Would you be honest with God right now, right here? And say, Lord, I am tempted to be right in my own eyes. And I am tempted to be worthy in my own works. And I want to commit myself to you in full conscious dependence on your greatness and your glory. And as we sing, let's find Him warming our hearts toward fully full dependence on Him today. When that that moment happened for me. I had a choice. And a common common decision that's made among people and athletes who are in my position is to allow my life to spin out of control. To maybe jump headlong into drinking potentially drugs, because my dreams are shattered, because my plans have been rerouted, and because, well, frankly, I've got nothing else to live for. Or, on that gray day, when my life was hit like a ton of bricks, I could simply say, well, God, you're good. And you know what's best. Yeah. And it wasn't too long after that that I met a 5'2 25 college volleyball player named Jamie Sprayberry. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't long after that we got married and uh, jumped right into ministry. And hit a home run. Yeah, and hit a home run. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Church body, I just want you to know that God is in the business of wrecking your plans. It's what He does. Because He's sovereign, and He's good, and you are finite and sinful, And and if you got everything that you planned for, you would be miserable today. But instead, God is merciful and gracious and loving to you, and even in the pain, His providence is good. And so I just want to encourage you today. I just want to encourage you. Trust yourself to a sovereign and gracious God who knows better than you know and loves you more than you love yourself. Amen.